well, be there, one. Two, to bring some, if you think your chili can stand up. Um, I don't, so I won't be bringing any. Um, but um, that should be a good time of fellowship. And we'll have a brief time of ministry around the web. I'll be speaking briefly. Uh, Pastor Brett will be speaking as well, doing some profiles from the Reformation and what we can learn from that. So October the 31st, I believe it's at 5 o'clock at um, First Baptist Church of Phoenix. be great to see some of our folks there as well. So if you can make it, we'll encourage you to be there for that. I think that's all my announcements. So with that, we come to the ministry of God's word. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, take it and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, continuing to plow our way through this sermon series that we've entitled Avoiding Gospel Distortion as we work our way verse by verse through the letter. If you don't have one already, you should have a study guide um, which kind of will help you to follow along with the outline and um, has some recommended resources and some application questions on the back. Galatians chapter 5. Our text this morning is going to be verses 1 through 6, Galatians 5, 1 through 6. But to read it in its context, we're going to read Galatians 5, 1 to 12. So Galatians chapter 5, reading from verse 1 and making our way through to verse 12. Galatians 5, 1 through 12. And if you're physically able, would you stand with me as we read this portion of God's word? It's out of reverence for God's word that we like to stand as we read the scripture. Galatians chapter 5 beginning in verse 1 and reading through to verse 12. As is our usual custom, we will read responsively. So I will read the odd-numbered verses. I will invite you to read the even-numbered verses with me. So Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 and reading through to verse 12. Galatians 5, verse 1 to verse 12. Brothers and sisters, these are, once again, God's words. For freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm then, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. Actually, we'll stop there in verse 6 and pick up next time. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we would ask that as we open up your word once again, you would open our eyes that we would see wonderful things from your law. We pray that as we think about this whole issue of the freedom that we have in Christ and the freedom that the cross purchases for us, that we would understand this from your perspective, that we would not look at our own experience. We would not allow what we think to be true to color what your word says, but we would allow your word to open our eyes and to grant us understanding. And Father, as we pray this for ourselves, we pray this for our brethren up at Faith OPC and Grants Pass this morning. Pray for Pastor Carl and the session there. Pray that 
they would know your blessing. Pray for their intern that ha- had the opportunity to meet yesterday. Elijah, who will be soon sent out to pastor a church in Arizona. Pray blessing upon his ministry, blessing upon their church there. Pray that they would see much of Christ as his word is opened and proclaimed. And may that be the case for us even now. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Please be seated. I've tagged our text this morning, stand in your freedom. Stand in your freedom. Simply mention the word freedom in certain contexts, and it works up all kinds of deep feelings among us. I I can't imagine that you've not seen all the back and forth in our culture at present regarding people's rights and freedoms in relation to various mandates that are being put out. There's something deep within us that resonates with the idea that we are not made to be slaves to anyone or anything. Throughout history, men have acted on that internal compulsion, that internal feeling, trying to bring about liberty for themselves and their fellow man. Whole countries have split and brother has turned against brother over this ideal of freedom for those who are in bondage. We recognize that slavery, that bondage is fundamentally unjust and there's something in us as human beings that fights to be free or to see others free. But for all of our freedom fighting, I think people are often more oblivious than ever to the fact that if you really think about it, there are a great many people who aren't that free at all. I mean, to be fair, that's nothing new. Turn with me to John chapter 8 real quickly as we get started this morning. John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to a group who had you know, claim that they had believed in him. And as he's talking to this group of people who have believed on him, Jesus is kind of laying down what life in him looks like. John chapter 8, if you're on verse 31, can I draw your attention there for a moment? John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says, well, John says, then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free, will set you free. Just think about that for a moment. Real freedom offered by the very God who made you. I mean, for most of us, if we heard an offer like that, we would not think twice about it. But what's their response? Verse 33, we are descendants of Abraham, they answered him. And we have never been enslaved to everyone. How can you say you will become free? The God who made you is offering you freedom. And yet the response is to turn around and say, but I'm already free. I don't need the freedom that you're offering. Actually, the response is kind of silly if you think about it. John chapter 8, he's writing to Jews who are under Roman occupation. They've not been free for a very long time. In fact, the little land of Judea, the little land of Israel that they were in, had basically been passed off from empire to empire for centuries at this point. They were anything but free. But putting that aside for one moment, the implication of Jesus' words is simple. The implication is that we as human beings are not born free. Something must happen for us to be made free. And yet their response here in John chapter 8 is, well, we were born free. How do you mean we need to be made free? 
Well, Jesus' answer is profound. Look at verse 34. He says, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. You see, sin brings slavery, but the good news is that Jesus brings freedom. I have a start here, not in Galatians 5, but John 8 for a moment. Because that same theme of freedom, if you want to turn back to Galatians 5, that same theme of freedom is going to be writ large pretty much from here through to the end of the letter. Actually, it started, if you remember, in our last study in Galatians in chapter 4, where he talks about the fact that we are the children of the free woman. We are the children of the covenant that brings freedom, not the covenant that brings bondage. The end of chapter 4, if you remember, was a really sophisticated defense of this freedom that we have. But now in chapter 5, as Paul starts to land the plane on this big theology section in Galatians, that started all the way back in chapter 2, Paul is going to hit this issue of freedom once again, but he's going to hit it from a slightly different angle. Now that we are free, Paul's question for us today is, well, how do we actually live in that freedom? To use his language in verse 1, how do we actually stand in that freedom? That's what our message this morning is going to address. How is it that in the face of attacks on the gospel, in the face of the offer of a distorted gospel, how is it that we are able to stand in our freedom? Paul's going to help us to realize the importance of our freedom and not only the importance of it, how standing in our freedom helps us in avoiding a distorted gospel. You remember that I've said that what we are looking at in this section from chapter 4, verse 8 to 512 is a five-fold appeal from Paul. It's a five-fold call on the part of the apostle to say, listen, don't accept a distorted gospel. And this morning we're going to see that part of a distorted gospel is that it brings you back into bondage every time, not liberty. If we were to sum up this passage in one simple statement, it would be this. That the Christian life is one of spirit-born freedom. Any other way will lead to bondage. The Christian life is one of spirit-born freedom. Any other way, any other way we talk about the Christian life, any way we try to live the Christian life, will lead us into bondage. To help flesh out that big idea, I want to consider this morning three realities about life in Christ that should ground us in our freedom. Three realities about life in Christ that should ground us in our freedom. And my hope is that as we look at these three realities, you'll look at your own life this morning and ask the question, have I come to really know this freedom that we're talking about today? Now, please know I said, have I come to know this freedom? I didn't ask, are you a Christian? Because I'm going to put it to you that there are Christians who are Christians, who have been saved, who love the Lord, and yet don't walk in the freedom that Christ purchased for them. My job this morning is very, very simple. I want you to walk out of here today with a lessened load on your shoulders. While I believe that the truths we're going to talk about are weighty, I don't believe that our disposition should have to be as a result. I believe that we should be people of God who are free, who have who are unencumbered, who then are able to serve one another, who are able to serve the Lord with joy, not with a feeling of, oh, I have to do this, but a feeling of, oh, I want to do this. So that's really my aim for this morning. I want to help us to be free people. So with that in mind, let's start working on our text this morning. 
verses 1 through 6. Three realities about life in Christ that should ground us in our freedom. Here's reality number one. Christ has set you free. Christ has set you free. Simple enough. Paul starts with the declaration of our freedom as Christians. So look at there at verse 1 with me. He says, for freedom, Christ set us free. Six words in English. Pretty simple. Doesn't really need much in the way of explanation. Well, a little explanation, maybe. Uh, the, the language here carries the idea of advantage or interest. When he says it was for freedom, it was in the interest of freedom. It was for the advantage of our freedom that Christ set us free. The Bible gives us a lot of reasons why Jesus died. One of my favorite books is written by John Piper, 50 Reasons Why Christ Came to Die. Really great book. I highly recommend it. He gives a bunch of them. One of the reasons that he gives that I fully agree with is that Jesus died in the interest of your freedom. And this is not a hypothetical freedom. It's not, notice Paul doesn't say, for freedom Christ might set us free. No, or Christ died so that we might be free. He doesn't say that Christ died so that liberty, as it were, could come down the pike. No, no, no. If you're in Christ, you are free right now. Through Jesus' life of obedience to the Father, through his all-atoning death, through his glorious resurrection, through his ongoing intercession for us, we are free. The idea of freedom or liberty, like I said, since chapter 4, has been kind of bubbling up in the background. And it's come up a few times, but we've not really defined it, have we? So for a moment, allow me to take a moment and just define what freedom is from a biblical perspective. There's two parts to it. Think of it as a coin with two sides. On the one hand, freedom carries the idea of deliverance, the captive being released from what is holding them. So if you want to use the analogy, someone's been captured, they're in a cage, as it were, they're in a cell, and then they're broken out of that cell. That's the first half of freedom, the deliverance that takes place. But not only does freedom carry the idea of deliverance, that's one side of it. On the other side, there's now the state of freedom, the state of liberty where we enjoy liberty without the fear of being captured again. So it's not enough that we're just broken out of our bondage, out of our capture as it were. Now we're also free. We're now able to live without the fear of being recaptured. Beloved, here's the good news. When Christ freed you from the penalty of your sin, he didn't just, as it were, bust you out and then leave you to fend for yourself. Rather, Jesus opens up the door to a new way of life, the way of liberty. Whereas we were one time constantly in bondage to sin and to the law, now we are free as God's people. A few times in this series, I've quoted the grammarian Kenneth Wiest, whose commentary has just been invaluable as I've been studying through Galatians. He's got like, these rare moments where he switches from being really technical and nerdy to being really pastoral. And here's another one of those moments. He put it like this. He says, quote, the liberty spoken of here does not refer to the kind of life a person lives. Neither does it have reference to his words and actions, but it has to do with the method by which he lives that life. 
Now, in swinging over to law, the Galatians were losing that freedom of action and that flexibility of self-determination, which one exercises in the doing of what is right. When one does right, not because the law forbids the wrong and commands the right, but because it is right, because it pleases the Lord Jesus and because of love for him. Paul exhorts them to keep standing fast and to keep on standing fast in that freedom from law. End quote. I don't know about you, but when I first started studying this a few years ago, this whole idea of Christian freedom and the liberty of the Christian, it made me a little uncomfortable. Uh, I, I imagine that if you grew up in church, what I'm saying right now sounds a little dangerous, doesn't it? Because if you grew up in church, you know that how do we typically motivate people to do things? Thank you. Fear. Either the fear of God or, more subtly, the fear of other people. I don't know about you, but I think I've talked about the background I grew up in. We had a, I like to call it the unwritten rule book. The only thing worse than a written rule book is an unwritten rule book. <laughs> At least with a written rule book, when I break the rules, I could, you know what, yeah, you know what, I shouldn't have done that, okay. But what do you do when the rule book is unwritten? What do you do when the standard of being a good Christian isn't much of a standard? It's more an opinion. And everyone's got their own one. The typical way that I've, in, across theological traditions, as I've been around different Christians, the typical way we try to get people to do the right thing is typically by browbeating them with the unwritten rule book of, quote-unquote, good Christian behavior. And let's be clear, the Bible does contain a lot of imperatives. It contains commands that we're called to obey. They're not just there to show you how bad you are. No, God desires obedience from us. But here's the thing, for the believer, even with the many commands and motivations of Scripture, the controlling motivation is not, I need to keep the rules. The controlling motivation for the Christian is what Jesus did for us and the grace in which we stand. I mean, sure, our feelings don't always line up with that reality. And yeah, our, our, our obedience in this life will be imperfect at the best of times. But brothers and sisters, can I put it to you? That's the beauty of the gospel message. The, the beauty of the gospel message is that in the Lord Jesus, he pardons our imperfections. And not only does he pardon our imperfections, he empowers our obedience for his glory. That's why Paul can say, look at the end of verse 1 there. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. The command there is ongoing in its tense form. It's the idea of standing, keep standing firm. It speaks to being fully committed in one's conviction and in one's belief. Hold your ground, essentially, Paul says, and don't become slaves all over again. And can I put it to you that that conviction of the freedom of the Christian, it's all too easy. I'm going to speak to our church family for a moment. Isn't it all too easy to lose that conviction? Isn't it all too easy, especially in the world post-COVID, to start to impose a culture of conformity one way or another instead of keeping our focus on Christ? If I can speak plainly for a moment, I I've been disturbed a little bit in the last few weeks couple of months. 
I see Christians who, again, I want to be very careful on how I say this. But I see Christians who lean one way or another in relation to a bunch of the issues that are contested in our, you know, in our day and age. And listen, I have opinions on those. If you come and ask me, I'll tell you them. It's not really a problem. But I draw the line personally. This is just me. This is not, I'm not speaking in this point as a representative of our church or what have you. I'm just speaking personally. I can, I'm very concerned. When we start making the mark of a good Christian where they stand on an issue that two years ago none of us were talking about. Sorry. To me, that's not the mark of a good Christian. Two years ago, none of us were talking about vaccine mandates or masks or social distancing or any of these things. Most of these things didn't even come into our minds. Now, I'm not saying that as a Christian you shouldn't have a view on that. I'm not even saying you shouldn't strongly hold your view on that. But I'm going to be honest. I get a little concerned when people become known for that rather than they're known for their stance about Jesus. Beloved, I put it to you that if Jesus is ever missing from the message or mission or values of our church, listen, you have my permission. Run, don't walk. Why? Because the glory would have long departed from here if that ever was the case. Beloved, I want to put it to you that we want to maintain a culture of gospel liberty here. That, you know what, even if somebody, we think they're utterly and completely wrong on this subject. You know what, that's still my brother in the Lord, though. They're free to be wrong, that's okay. After all, as long as they're right about Jesus, we can, we can work on everything else. As long as we've got that, we've got everything else, okay? If you want to hear more about that, I preached a sermon series about a year ago called the black and white god's black and white on gray areas it was a study of romans 14 and 15 i highly recommend that it's available on our website i love how one pastor todd wilson pastor of calvary memorial church in chicago he put it like this quote a dead body a dead body lurking in the murky waters of a pool that's how legalism works in the life of a church in the life of a christian this is because legalism lurks in the corners of every Christian heart. And it is often the case that the most susceptible are the most intensely religious. Legalists begin to lose sight of what ultimately counts. They start thinking that non-essentials are essential. They begin to insist that the good things, that good things, excuse me, are in fact necessary. And the result is that they look with pity or suspicion on anyone who would think or do otherwise. Well, beloved, I pray that that would never be the case here, now, or ever. I could say more about that, but I'm already behind on time. Christian, you should stand in your freedom because Christ has set you free. Secondly, Christian, you should stand in your freedom because the law cannot liberate you. The law cannot liberate you, verses 2 through 4. In verse 1, Paul made a simple declaration, but now in the verses that follow, he's going to spell that out some more. Why should the Christian stand firm in their liberty? Well, for one thing, the law simply cannot liberate you. I want to look a little deeper at that statement, the fact that the law cannot liberate. I want to look at verses 2 through 4, one verse at a time, and kind of see why it is that the law can't liberate you. Three reasons. First of all, the law can't liberate you because the law has no value when you put it next to Christ. The law has no value compared to Christ. Paul says it plain as day, verse 2. You see it there? He says, take note. I, Paul, am telling you 
that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. He will not benefit you at all. Circumcision has come up a few times in Galatians. It's, we know it was a crucial message in the you know, crucial element, I should say, in the message of the Judaizers, these false teachers who were bothering these churches in Galatia. Acts 15.1, some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. So circumcision was kind of a big deal for these folks. Now, in and of itself, circumcision wasn't sinful. God was the one who commanded it. We've read it in our Bible reading, Genesis chapter 17. He commands it as a sign and a seal of his covenant with Abraham. So if that's the case, if circumcision isn't sinful, in fact, God commanded it, why is it that Paul, as it were, swings for the fences and says, listen, if you are circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Kind of follow the math here for a second. Paul says, if you have Christ, you have profit. But if you add if you have Christ, and then you put circumcision next to Christ, no profit. Everyone following the math so far? Well, why is that? Well, I put it to you that the reason why Paul can say that is this. If you put anything next to Christ, it profits you nothing. See, circumcision wasn't the problem. Right? He's going to tell us that in verse 6. Circumcision wasn't the problem. Until the Judaizers attempted to give it equal billing with faith in Christ. The minute they started to say, it's faith in Jesus plus circumcision. Here's the irony. When anything is added to Jesus, the first thing you lose is Jesus. After all, think about it. Jesus is in a league all by himself. To attempt to add anything to him is actually to decrease his value. If he's equal to something, he's not that much special. No more any special, is he? Worse yet, if you add anything to him, you're left without Jesus, and you're left only with what you came with. <laughs> Paul essentially says, listen, if the Judaizers like circumcision so much, congratulations, it's all they've got left. But not only did the law have no value in comparison to Christ, here's another reason why the law can't liberate. The law demands total obedience. The law can't liberate, not just because of its value, but because if you choose to be under it, you choose to be under all of it. So that's why he says in verse 3, again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. I've kind of drummed this point to death, so I won't spend long on it. I'll just review it quickly. But throughout Galatians, Paul has been at great pains to say, listen, the law of Moses was a unit. You can't break it up into little pieces and say, well, hold on to this part while we don't do this part. He says, listen, if you're going to do some of it, you've got to do all of it. In case you missed that, just very quickly, let me review some verses. I'll just read them. Deuteronomy 27 and 26. Anyone who does not put the words of this law into practice is cursed. Notice he just puts the words of this law. He doesn't say some of them. He doesn't say the ones that you can do. No, he says, if you don't do these things, you're cursed. And all the people will say amen. Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. James chapter 2 verses 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point. You've done 99.99999 but you forgot this less than 1%. 
He says, if you do that, you're guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Points made, I should hope. Do it all or suffer the penalty. And if the law demands total obedience, it can't liberate. Because nobody can completely obey the law in thought, word, and deed perfectly. Like I said, I won't dwell here long because we've touched on this point at length in our study so far. But another reason, third reason, that the law can't liberate. The law can't ensure communion with Christ. The law cannot ensure communion with Christ. Now, with this, we come to one of the toughest texts in the letter to the Galatians. Verse 4. He says, you who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Now, there's a bad way to read this and a good way to read this. The bad way to read this sounds something like this. I pulled this off a website trying to explain this verse. He says, quote, The apostle states that those Christians who turn to Moses' law for salvation as an appendix to the gospel are severed from Christ. Mark that. Two points. One, excuse me, one, one cannot be severed from that to which he was not joined. Hence, we are dealing with apostate children of God. These rebels stand severed from Christ. If one stands away from the Lord, he is certainly not in a saved position. Second, reflect on this thought. If being in grace denotes salvation, why wouldn't being away from grace signify condemnation? Block this verse off in your Bible and tag it. The child of God can fall from grace. That's a bad way to read this, if I'm honest. I'll put it to you that that is awful logic and even worse Bible study technique. Here's a good rule for Bible study. You know, I like to throw these in every now and again. Here's a good rule for when you study your Bible. When you come to a passage that is difficult or unclear, you interpret that passage in light of all the clear passages. So, let's ask the question. This passage, on the face of it, is not as clear as some other passages. What are the clear texts in the Bible that talk about the fact that the believer is secure in his salvation, that salvation cannot be lost? I'm just going to give you two. And I think they're pretty important ones because they're Jesus himself. John chapter 6, verse 37 to 39. He says, everyone the Father gives me, this is Jesus himself speaking, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. John chapter 10, verses 28 to 30. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Can I put it to you that our shepherd is actually very good at his job? He hasn't lost a sheep, and he never will. And quite frankly, I find it profoundly insulting to say that he does. So no, the Christian cannot lose their salvation. I think the Bible's clear enough on that. So if that's not what Paul is saying here, well, okay, that's great. But what is Paul saying here? Because we still need to make sense of this. As best as I can understand it, here's what I believe Paul is actually saying. If you 
reject faith alone as the only ground of acceptance before and relationship with God, you've rejected the only way to enjoy God's grace. Let me say that again. If you reject faith alone as the only ground of acceptance before and relationship with God, you've rejected the only way to enjoy God's grace. Let me flesh that out a little bit. Our Christian lives are made up of two elements. There's the subjective and the objective. I like to refer to these as our union with Christ and our communion with Christ. Laura and I have been married nearly four and a half years. October 22nd will be exactly four and a half years. As our union goes, we can't be more or less married. Either we're married or we're not. And this thing around my finger says, we're married. Now I could say, you know, Laura and I are married. We're locked in. We're here. It doesn't matter how I treat her. I can be harsh and abrasive. I can never be home and never explain where I was and why I was gone and, you know, roll up at any hour of the night and just be like, none of your business. We're married. Get over it. After all, we're married, right? Some of you are looking at me like you have lost your ever-loving mind. Correct. (laughs) Why? Because we recognize that there's more to a marriage than just entering into a union. You've got to actually work at this thing. Why? If I start behaving the way I just described, I'm not enjoying the communion, the subjective relationship that exists because my wife and I are now one flesh. And that is what I think Paul, that's what I think Paul is getting at. If you go seeking union with Christ via the way of law, guess what? You use you lose the communion that comes with that too. John Calvin in his commentary nailed it perfectly in one sentence. He said, you deprive yourself of every advantage from Christ and treat his grace as if it were of no value whatsoever. See, beloved, faith alone rests on and receives from Christ. That's how we enjoy progress in the Christian life. We often think that progress in the Christian life happens as I try harder and I do better. The reality is, the more you try harder and the more you do better, the more you realize, hmm, I can't do this by myself. I need the grace that only Jesus can provide to be able to walk in a way that's pleasing to him. As Jesus said, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit, so it will bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Some of my favorite words of Jesus in all the Bible. Because without me, you can do nothing. As a body in its infancy, we want to foster a culture, like I said just a few minutes ago, not just of gospel liberty, but of gospel life. A way of life that flows out of faith in Jesus. A way of life that flows out of receiving that which he has done for us. Not as it were we're trying to perform to make him happy with us. 
We want to foster and cultivate the kind of way of life that enjoys all the benefits that he has won for us. And then out of gratitude for that, we're able to serve one another. Whatever the law demands, it can't produce that. And that's Paul's point in verse 4. That because you have decided that you want to pursue the law, guess what? The benefits that come with grace, yes, you're still God's children, but the benefits that come with that, the communion that comes with that, you're rejecting that. You've fallen from that place. So the Christians should stand in their freedom because Christ has set us free. The law cannot liberate. But finally, the Spirit enables us to hope. The Spirit enables us to hope. One more motivation will be done. Verses 5 and 6. The, the third reality that should motivate us as we think about freedom in Christ has to do with the energizing power behind our life in Christ. That power is the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a character we care a lot about here at Redeemer Bible. Some of you will remember I preached a lengthy 19-part series on his person and work. Not my habit to preach long topical series like that, but this was why a series like that was necessary. The, you remember, those of you who were here for that series, remember I kept saying this phrase from Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, that the, the Holy Spirit is the love gift of the Father to the people that the Son chose. He's indispensable to the life of the individual Christian and the church as a whole. And Paul will spell out for us another reason why the Spirit is so crucial for the Christian. So verse 5, he says, For we eagerly await through the Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness. What does Paul mean here when he says this? Now, you could take this as carrying the sense of, for the Spirit helps us to await the full manifestation of the righteousness that we'll have on the final day. So on the final day when we stand before God and we receive the verdict that says, okay, not guilty because of what Jesus has done, the Spirit helps us to wait in the here and now for that. But I think Paul is actually being simpler than that. The Spirit helps us to wait for the promised future. And guess what? We don't wait for the verdict on the final day. Because we've been justified by faith, we know what the verdict is in the here and now. If I can put it another way, it's not that we are waiting for righteousness. Rather, we are, notice what Paul says, we await the hope of righteousness. Literally, the hope that belongs to righteousness. There's a hope that righteousness brings. By the way, when the Bible says hope, hope is not wishful thinking like, oh, I hope this will happen. The Bible's understanding of hope is certain expectation. Not I hope it will happen, it's I know this will happen. And of course, I don't deny that life is hard. I don't deny that it can be wearying to walk by faith, especially when challenges arise. But here is the hope that the gospel gives us. That even when our present circumstance is hard, the future is gloriously assured. I'll be honest, this is one of the reasons why I have little to no patience for preaching and teaching that seeks to give light weight. You hear people, I hear people in preaching use this term all the time and I hate it, hate it, hate it. I just want to give people something for Monday morning. I mean, I'm not a Monday person. Nothing makes Monday morning great. <laughs> it's Monday morning. <laughs> but what's the, the general idea there? You know, if I give people some stuff that they can use on Monday morning, I've done my job. 
Can I put it to you that I actually don't need something for Monday morning? I need something for when the tough times come. I need something for when the waves beat against the house. You know that language that Jesus uses? I need, you need truth that can hold you up and carry you through. I don't need a tidbit for how to deal with some person on Monday morning. I can't tell you the future. I mean, I don't own a crystal ball. I can't tell you what the future of our church or your own Christian life will be. But I can tell you this. It's my hope and my prayer that this pulpit, not this physical piece, but what this pulpit represents, the ministry that happens from here, will always, with God's help, be dedicated to this. This is how I put it when I was writing this. I was thinking about how do I put this? And it hit me like this. We, this pulpit will always be dedicated to weighty truths for weary pilgrims to rest in and to walk on. Can I put it to you that what we need in this day and age is not watered down life application? Here's 10 things to do that none of us are going to do because we don't remember the last 10 things we got. I used to hate that growing up. It's like, here are three things you should do this week. I'm like, I didn't do the three things you gave me last week. Shut up. <laughs> I don't need that guilt. No, much rather, you know what God's people need? God's people need his word, unfiltered, unadulterated, as he gave it. You know why? The spirit does that. My pastor Lon used to say this all the time. I never got it until I started preaching regularly. God designed the scriptures to do very particular things. The spirit of God inspired the Bible to work a particular thing in God's people. So how about we get out of the way and just let the Spirit do what he does through his work? I'd like to say more about that, but that was a very extended rabbit trail. Back to our text. Why is it that Paul says believers can have this hope? He talks about this hope that belongs to righteousness. Why is it that believers can have this hope? Is it because we obey the rules? Is it because of our faithfulness? Is it our goodness? Not according to Paul. Look at verse 6. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. The believer has hope because the object of our hope is outside of us. What we do or do not do, at least as it relates to our hope, isn't the issue. It's a matter of what, or in this case, in whom our hope lies. Paul essentially says to these Christians who are basically being told you need to be circumcised. Listen, whether you were cut or not, it doesn't even factor here. Listen, what factors here is the fact that you've been united to Christ. We've been united to Christ. You've been joined to him. We've been joined to him. Never to be separated. It's from that position that we are able to live for God's glory. It's out of faith that we are able to live lives of love towards God and neighbor. One of my preaching heroes, John MacArthur, in his commentary, nailed it. He put it like this, quote, Life in the spirit is not static and inactive, but it is faith working through love, not the flesh working through self-effort. Believers are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But their working is the product of their faith, not a substitute for it. They do not work for righteousness, but out of righteousness through the motivating power of love. I love how he put this. 
Love needs neither the prescriptions or proscriptions of the law because its very nature is to fulfill the law's demand. As Paul declares later on, the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A person does not, for instance, steal from or lie to someone he truly loves. He certainly does not kill someone he loves. The person who lives by faith works under the internal compulsion of love and does not need the outward compulsion of law. Paul doesn't make the kind of distinction that we make between, okay, either it's I simply just rest in what God has done or it's all me. No, Paul says, no, 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 no. Free people are free to live as God's people. And that's how he wraps up this section. He says, listen, the thing that matters the most is not your obedience to the law of circumcision. It's not your obedience to the law of Moses. It's not your conformity to an external standard. It's, is your faith in the right place? Does your faith have the right object in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ? And as a result of that faith, is that faith being manifested in works driven by love? That's what true freedom looks like. And faith family, as I land the plane this morning, I'm done. As I land the plane this morning, isn't it fair to say that gospel liberty is wonderful when you understand it? Isn't this what we would want above all else? A freedom in Christ that doesn't make us selfish and self-obsessed and insular. But it's the kind of freedom that makes us free to love one another and to love the Lord and to glorify him. I know I just said I don't like to give people things to do at the end of sermons. But can I give you just one, just one, which I think comes out of this passage? Beloved, stand in your freedom. But it's just, isn't it just worth it to stand in the freedom that Jesus has purchased for us? Father, we are so grateful that we have that freedom. We're grateful that because of what your son did on, in our place, we will never again know bondage. We will never again know what it is to be held captive to somebody else. And Father, even in those moments where we don't live as free people, Father, help us by your grace that we would. Help us that we would live lives that adorn the gospel. Lives that demonstrate that we are indeed free people. And that we would manifest that freedom in our dealings with others. Even as we maybe disagree on issues, even as we maybe don't see eye to eye on things, that we would not allow our disagreements to crowd out the fact that we are your people. Father, we thank you for this message. I pray that it's been a blessing to your people. I ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Before the guys sing, I forgot one last announcement, which is that those of you who are in the membership class, our last membership class is tonight at 7. Hope you can join us for that, the last one, and then I will stop hogging up your Sunday evenings. But I hand it over to you guys.